have a fairly forward-thinking stance of, of AI and its potential, but we also identify the risks. It's nice to have a commercial enterprise with commercial rewards that also has such an obvious social consequence. You never think about scale when you're a clinician. It's not a word that you use, maybe in the public health space, but never in the context of direct clinical care. As a first-time founder, when you don't know any better, you do a ton of things that you might not have known to do. From day one, we had, had this obsession around workflow and making it really as convenient as possible for physicians to adopt this, understanding that one of the toughest problems in healthcare is simply adoption. Welcome back to the AWS Health Innovation Podcast. I'm Alex from AWS, and today I'm thrilled to share the second half of our all-time top 10 episodes countdown with you. If you missed part one of the countdown last week, make sure to check that out, where we covered Artero's innovations in healthcare customer service, Incitro's blend of biology and machine learning, Canvas Medical's innovative EMR system, Ford Health's proactive healthcare philosophy, and Us2AI's advancement of AI and echocardiography. This week, we'll complete our journey and hear highlights from our top five episodes of all time, showcasing some of the most inspiring and innovative companies reshaping healthcare. Let's get going. At number five, we enter the world of AI and medical documentation with DeepScribe. Akalish Bapu, co-founder and CEO, joined us in episode 58 to share how DeepScribe is enhancing medical documentation with AI, emphasizing the crucial role of keeping humans in the loop. So, Akalish, I'm glad that you've got a deep background in, in AI research because I think our audience will really benefit from you explaining just what is AI, how does DeepScribe use it, what techniques do you use, and why did you select those techniques? Can you tell us a little bit more about the underlying technology? Yeah, absolutely. So AI to us at DeepScribe is this magical way to teach a computer to do something as good or better than a human for a critical high-risk text. And what that means for us is that the way we employ AI is a little bit differently than, you know, how other people may employ AI. In healthcare, positioning is very important, which means you can't make mistakes. And the balance between having a doctor write a note from scratch versus making edits on your note is a very thin one. And so if you get an AI that isn't accurate enough, you actually end up costing the doctor more time on writing the note than if they had used their initial workflow. So hard to nail. And so the way we employ AI at Describe is actually a couple of different ways. The first way is we first transcribe the audio and we have a unique way of doing that where we lean on multiple different vendors because no single speech vendor is good at every single conversation and gets the highest accuracy. Also, what we learned about the space is that folks release bi-weekly updates. And so you want to make sure you're always into that. Right? So that we have a stack around that. The second way we use AI is actually writing the notes. And this means using a combination of larger language models, same on our data set, as well as large foundation models like GPT-4 that are really good at what they do and ensemble together to generate a note. And then the last thing we do that's unique at DeepScribe is we actually have a human reviewing the note at the end before it actually goes to the doctor. And that allows us to actually bring AI that may not actually be completely production ready for a new market, especially one like healthcare, and bridge that gap until it's ready. And a few years ago, wasn't so ready. And so the human was doing a lot, but more recently, becoming more and more ready, 
We still argue at DeepScribe that it's not completely ready because you still see very obvious mistakes here and there. But that's the last part of our stack. Great. So on July 23rd, you were profiled in the Wall Street Journal and they dug into how you train your models and how you ensure accuracy in the output. Can you tell us a little bit more about the coverage and why you feel it's so important to have humans in the loop? Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, as you guys may know, we were covered in the Wall Street Journal early last week. And the article was primarily written around the perils of AI in healthcare, so to speak. And at Describe, we are on the cutting edge of what's possible from an AI standpoint, given the data, given the talent of the team, given how long we've been in the space, um, working directly with doctors and leading institutions to see what's possible and what isn't possible. And so we have a fairly forward-thinking stance of, of AI and its potential. But we also identify the risks. They can miss a crucial medication. It can misrepresent who the patient really is if there are multiple caregivers in the room. They can jump to the wrong conclusions if they're dancing around in the conversation. And it can make some very crucial errors. And so for us, the DeepScribe, there is a path we could take where we could put the onus of reviewing the notes on the doctor and have the doctor be responsible for the edits. And I think legally speaking, that's a fair way to deploy a product. But from our standpoint, I think the real responsible way to deploy a new product like this is with the right protections in place so that we don't do harm to clinicians, to patients, and to healthcare in general. And so a human is a very crucial part of that for us. And we actually invested from early on how to scale the human loop. And one of our angel investors, Alex from Scale AI, has really been instrumental in giving us guidance from how Scale AI solved it. And and basically sharing notes here and there and guiding us on how to solve it. And we feel pretty good about it today from a scalability standpoint. And so I think from a accuracy and trust and safety standpoint, human loop is very important, but it's also important from a accelerating of model stint. And so when you have a human labeling data at near perfect precision, that takes your model much farther than if you have an unstructured or unlabeled data set or non-clean data set. So we also see that it's one of the big advantages and we've been able to see progress and the AI doing things much sooner because the cleanliness of the data that we have. So that's how we use human loop at DeepScriber. We continue to advertise it and continue to be proud of it. And we think it's an essential safeguard in a world of AI and healthcare. I appreciate that answer. And the reality is when things go wrong in healthcare, they can go quite wrong. So it's very understandable that the industry is very conservative. But I think we need to take a balanced view when assessing AI systems and their opportunities and risks. And that includes understanding the downside risks of not deploying them. Can you share a bit more about that? Yeah, absolutely. That's a great question, Alex, and obviously something that's very near and dear to our hearts at DeepStride. The main place that I would start there is in terms of what a physician's workflow looks like today. A physician today basically spans about 10% of their visit face-to-face with the patient. That's a key stat that's out there. And if you look at physician status today, almost half of them admit through surveys that they're burned out, which is an insanely critical stat that really affects patient care. And then if you look at it financially, when you look at organizations and how much they're spending on clinicians or write notes versus patients and sum up the cost it's close to $155 billion that the U.S. health system spends for clinicians to write notes. And so if you combine all of those together, you can argue that the clinicians are losing. You can argue that the health systems are losing. But really, the people that are losing here 
are the patients because uh, at the end of the day, the care that they get is not at the level that it, they should be getting, the face timers getting, the amount of critical thinking the clinician puts into their diagnosis, the quality of representation of information regarding that. And that's just on the care pathway part. Then you also have, from a statistical standpoint, how it affects their own healthcare outcomes. The U.S. healthcare system is well known to have a 5% misdiagnosis rate. And the third leading cause of death is medical errors. And what, what all of it on documentation, but documentation and the amount of time clinicians have to spend in a distracted state leads to these pretty dire outcomes. And so at DeepScribe, I think the way we would solve a lot of this or the solution we would bring to the table is really the gift of time, giving clinicians the flexibility and time to focus on what they think matters the most, which will, in most cases, hopefully be the patient. And if we can allow clinicians to do that, then from a financial standpoint, organizations win. From a burnout standpoint, clinicians win because they're doing what they love. But the most important part is that patients will get 100% undivided attention from the clinician. And they'll have nearly perfect documentation of what went wrong. So the clinician can give a thorough assessment. And then in the future, by integrating ourselves into the conversation and at the point of care, the hope is that we can also have an AI work with a clinician in harmony to cover their blind spots. If there's a diagnosis they're not thinking of, or if there's a treatment they're not thinking of, or if there's something that only AI can do, like diagnose a clinician from voice, that's something we can supplement the clinician with. And I think that will truly take us to this world of healthcare that we're all dreaming of, where you don't have errors, you don't have clinicians dealing with cloaking software and wasting their time. And that's the world of healthcare we all look forward to. In healthcare, we focus a lot on evidence generation and clinically validating solutions that are being deployed in the clinic. And for AI, that is super important considering how non-inspectable, opaque, and difficult to interpret these systems can be. However, what I really appreciate about Akalish and DeepScribe's approach is they're looking for lower risk opportunities to deploy AI to improve patient journeys and make the system more efficient. And fortunately, there's other entrepreneurs in the health innovation space who are also looking for administrative AI use cases to really make an impact. Coming in at number four is Cohere Health. In episode 17, Duncan Reese, the COO and co-founder, joined us to share how they transform utilization management. We learned how backend optimizations like improving the prior authorization process can have a big impact on patients. Let's learn more. I'd love to go back to something you mentioned about turning a liability into an asset. And is that because you're collecting data at that point and it's something that has to happen anyway in terms of utilization management, prior authorization, so you can better inform that, do it based on best practices. Talk me through that. Like, I love that framing and it seems really elegant. So I'd love to hear about how you think through going from uh, liability to asset. Yeah, so it's elegant and it's often almost too basic is the other way to think about it. And any other, almost any other sector of the economy, this would be basic. Like, how do you think about product and design and technology? But um, the prior authorization process, I like to say it's actually kind of neat. And if as you're a doctor, you would say mm -hmm. that's horrendous that you would even say that comment, right? And any clinician would say that. But the reason it's interesting is one, 
It exists in clinical workflow, as I said before. Two, it's a massive pain point. So there's so much low-hanging fruit to make it simpler and easier. Three, it's structured data. So it's CPT codes, it's diagnosis codes. And when you think about the connections into electronic medical records, much more information that exists. Right. And then it, it, and it exists and it, it basically happens in advance of an intervention. And then lastly, if you actually think about it, rather than as a, a siloed decision in, a, in, in an instant, like I, do I approve this image or not? Do I approve the surgery or not? Do I approve this physical therapy or not? And you switch your mindset and say, hey, what are the likely patient journeys that could exist based on who this patient is and the pathway that they're on based on their diagnosis and the likely treatment plan that they are on or should be on? And what are the things that we can do differently? You come at a very different set of opportunities to be helpful to that patient or that member if you're thinking about from the insurance company's perspective. So immediately you say, wait, how do I get upstream of this decision? So specific, if it's a surgery, like surgery is too late. What happened at the interventional pain authorization? What happened at the physical therapy? What happened at the PCP referral, right? So you think very differently about getting upstream to the people who start these processes. And then who's the ultimate person that you want to get upstream to is the patient themselves, the member themselves. And so we think every single day about how to do those kinds of things. And we can, to your your question, because we have access to this interesting data and we think longitudinally around patient journeys. And then we have the opportunity to intervene differently than traditional specialty benefit management companies or the way in which health, health insurance companies have worked in the past. In that model, who is your primary customer? Who brings in Cohere to that interaction? And then as a follow-up, I'm imagining you have a split between the primary customer and then the user who's actually using your solution. Yeah. So the primary customer, so the paying customer, and we think there's actually an important design principle for the company, as well as the right way in which to make change fastest and most broadly is the health insurance company, or in some respects, a risk-bearing medical group when they perform insurance-like services. So they pay us basically so they can be a better partner to their members and to the network to drive better outcomes for members, for patients, and to improve the burdensome experience that providers have is like the AMA is up in arms. And I think right now, 41 of the 50 states have legislation that's either been written or is in the process of being written related to these burdensome prior auth standards. So they are the, the insurance company is the paying customer. And what is great about that is that allows us to access the entire set of members and the entire network to drive change with technology. And then importantly, as you said, the bulk of the design resources that we spend and the technology resources that we expend are actually experienced by the provider, right? The, the practice that's thinking about the authorizations that need to be submitted to get the patient the care they need quickly. We're paid by the health plan to be, to help the health plan be a much better, deliver a much better experience. And what we have been able to see is this drives better clinical outcomes, drives better member experience. It significantly decreases the costs to the ordering providers practice and the amount of work doctors expend in these, in these prior authorization processes. And importantly, we also see the total cost of care goes down. 
while the burden for the doctor, the burden for the member also goes down. And that's like this game-changing idea in utilization management when historically the measures were, what's your denial rate? What's your withdrawal rate? What's your peer-to-peer rate? The hammer kinds of metrics that are effectively built upon incentivizing friction, which we think is unacceptable. So it allows you to get to better, more impactful metrics even, which is a real scale, right? It's a real, it's worth like lingering on that for a second, because anybody who knows the system, as you said, everything is is, uh, defined in the negative, the rejection rate, things like that. And you think about what that represents as it bleeds through the system versus optimization, like things that are how do you optimize the best outcomes, not mitigate the worst outcomes? Correct. And, and if you think about it from a physician's perspective or a medical group's perspective, I have in one model, the insurance company blocking me from doing what I think is good, right? Providing care for page. In the other model, the insurance company helping me get the good outcome, right? Get the care fast. And even Friday, we had a medical group in Texas say, oh, here's the only organization that we've ever worked with that feels like you're trying to help us be successful, which is just, you know, terrible. That's the state of the United States today. And I just think, and we think it cohere, it has to change. Otherwise, we're going to be in this morass of unacceptable outcomes, unacceptable expenditures, and unacceptable waste for a long time. We talk a lot about cost and bringing costs down and making care more accessible. And it's really inspiring to hear how Cohere Health is just making it simpler for patients to get the care that they need by improving the prior auth process. Moving on through our countdown, we come to number three with Zeus Health. CEO and co-founder Jonathan Bush sat down with us in episode 44 to share his critical views on the duplicative nature of the U.S. health system and how his experience from founding Athena Health has shaped Zeus Health's strategy. Having had the privilege of interviewing, but not getting an internship at Athena when I was a business school student, ah, I, was, ah. I was, I was, I've been waiting for that. I was you, you, you could have easily sent me an email saying the committee at <laughs> Amazon podcast has uh, reviewed your application. And we are sorry to inform you that you don't meet our standards for an interview. It was tempting. One of the things I was the most amazed about just walking into the campus in Watertown was you would never believe the size of the company. This is a giant publicly traded company with huge market share in this big area. And how do you, how did you maintain that at Athena? And how does that change or dictate how you operate at Zeus? As you grow. Obviously, we were lucky to have traction really helps hold people together. If you have a cause that people see to be working, they'll stay engaged. Sometimes for short periods of time, they'll be even more engaged if it's not working and you engage in a turnaround. There's a passionate save the station type of feel. But mostly it just, oh, we, I think the last year I was there was our lowest growth year and that was 22% or something on a billion. I don't know. So it was traction that held people together. And it's nice to have a commercial enterprise with commercial rewards that also has such an obvious social consequence. Doctors just trying to get through the bloat in their lives right. to do medicine and being able to, to make a huge dent, bigger dent than anybody had done in that was just exciting, excited people. 
it was enough of an excitement to get probably the biggest contribution we made wasn't the elimination of that work. It was the attraction of the people like you who came to interview who would have never found themselves in one of the healthcare IT companies of pre-Athena life. And now you go around, there's venture capitalists, there's engineers, there's right. modern component builders. There's huge swaths of AWS that are healthcare use cases. And, uh, you know, I think Athena in its early success and in its passionate approach to the effort is partly responsible for all those people. You've also been a great advocate and chronicler of the evolution of the data ecosystem within healthcare. And Zeus is a clear example of that, as you laid out earlier. What are some of those trends that you've followed? And what's the yeah. direction off of that? It's funny. I, for some reason, an image that always comes into my mind is the Ages of Man exhibit at the uh, Museum of Natural History in New York when I was a little boy. I walked in and so I don't remember exactly, but on the left, you know, somewhere on the lower left, there's a chimpanzee. And somewhere in the upper right is a white dude wearing a fedora hat and a business suit carrying a briefcase. An IBM exec, maybe. An IBM exec. And it was like, oh, so that's how it ends. Like, the, then you hit the frame, it's over. And I thought, isn't that interesting? I wonder if that's how it ends. I did a similar one at Athena where in the gorilla ages was the software product on a disc. And then you'd go out and you'd buy a computer and you'd stick the disc in the computer and you'd burn the software on. And then whatever instructions were on that disc, the computer would do like a Rube Goldberg marble art or a domino domino exhibition of the Ecuadorian flag at those little piazzas, you know, and they knock the domino and then all the dominoes, that's what software was, right? And then somebody said, hold on, what if we could make this computer distribute to more places? Or what if we could store the software for you? And lo and behold, the ASP was born and a whole mm. industry of doing the stick the disc in for you. Right. And, and, and storing on bigger compute, the primordial ooze from whence came AWS somewhere in the middle. And then people thought, oh, the, the modern age was going to be SaaS companies. And that's where it ended. That was the white guy in the suit, Mark Benioff. And I'm like, but wait a minute, like Mark Benioff is selling the exact same piece of software, unenhanced to all of these people that are actually doing the same thing. Some of them are literally calling on the same individual people. Isn't there more here? Couldn't Mark sell Salesforce by the meeting or by the sale instead of by the month license? Isn't there, and couldn't that data be better organized if it wasn't duplicated for every customer? And a lot of what Athena did, we called it SES instead of SaaS, software enabled services that we actually mm -hmm. did work for. The software, we would say, is free. Today I'm looking, I'm like, was that the end? Is that the white guy in the, in the fedora? And now we're looking at what if there's SaaS? What if the data that you work on is also a service? What if you certainly keep the compute, but what if instead of this silly little brittle database that only has your keystrokes in it or your clicks or your drop-down choices, what if there's something much larger and profound that you connect to? This is what Andy did with you guys and, you know, helped to change the world. And I would love to see that happen. I think it has to happen vertical by vertical. And so I'd like to humbly take on the $4 trillion that we're working on. And maybe that, and of course, that won't be the end of the Ages of Man exhibit either. Right. Maybe that's the next guy. Maybe that's the guy in the pookie beads who has work-life balance. You're a great predictor 
of the of what's next. And I, having done some diligence on this, you said that nudging was going to be the next big thing. What is right. what did you mean by that? On the care delivery side, we have the sort of the one hit cure down. Obviously, it needs to get better, but it's pretty freaking amazing. I, I never forget that my metaphor is my dear friend and former head of communications. Daughter runs across the road at a family compound. Compound is a grand term. Family set of shacks way out in down East Maine. And the one guy with a car in town happened to be right. slamming down that road and they clobber her. And there's no way in anywhere in the world at any time in history, this child miles and bridges and dirt roads away from civilization is going to live. And somehow some deputy picks up the 911 on the rickety phone because there's no cell, calls in the, oh, I know that house, looks up the lat lawn, calls in the life flight. And by the time they get to Maine Med, there's the surgeon. They already know what they're going to do. And the kid was a graduate of college and brilliant person out there changing the world herself today. We can do that stuff. But 80% of what we spend money on in healthcare is not that stuff. Right. It's what we now are calling the social determinants of care, the social drivers of disease. And the cure for those things are not available in a helicopter or a drug or a scalpel. They're available in tiny emotional, sometimes clinical, sometimes technical nudges over time. So the very notion of the exam room that taking your, the irony, right? Go back to our ages of man exhibit. It ends with you taking your pants off and sitting on wax paper and a Welch Allen thing goes in your ear. Right. That can't be how it, it just can't be how it ends. And, and, and what we're seeing now is all these companies enhanced by the pandemic, maybe too enhanced by the pandemic, plus too much money in the economy. But anyway, are coming off with this idea of always on, instantly available care. And they are making giant dents in total medical expense. They're more available and they're costing less overall because people aren't, you know, without them, what do you do? Call your doctor and I, you go to your care, you go to the emergency room and everyone does. And then they get sucked into whatever specialist happens to be on the other side of that emergency room and the care is not what it should be. So these nudgers need a different doctor's office. They need no doctor. They need a Bloomberg machine, not a doctor. Right. So nudging is basically taking that primary care doctor energy and distributing it into people's pockets and beds and potties and, and then taking the cure and doing the same thing, whether it's physical or chemical, um, dosing it out, titrating it out and constantly iterating and updating and iterating and updating. And that really does actually cure disease. That is a cure for heart disease. You know, Lipitor is not a cure. It is a problematic temporary suspension of heart disease symptoms, right? Which is great compared to no suspension of symptoms. But there is a cure for it, which involves eat and sleep and exercise and force and lots of stuff that can be delivered in the form of care. And so one of the things that Zeus does, there's two jobs to do. We'll hopefully do many that Zeus enables for EMR companies and, and digital health companies that have their own EMRs. One is get up to speed, which is I've never seen this person before. I've got to answer hundred questions and I can't get paid for that. Let me go back to the record and see what was already there. And the other is stay in the know. So basically they've, I've done whatever I've done. Now I want to monitor. I want to stay in touch. So let me know if they see another doctor, get another drug, 
pick up my drug. Don't pick up my drug. Go to the emergency room. You can imagine all the things. Hit their scale and change the needle. Don't sleep. All these things are easily monitorable with the right level of technology, but the EMR needs a always-on game layer to consume it. And that's what we'd like to plug in for them. I think whether it's these new cool digital health venture back players that rise up and form their own public health tickers, or whether they get bought into the established players who then develop the ability to do this work, the way that e-banks got bought up so that now banks are all e, they're all going to need that layer of infrastructure, information infrastructure. It's been so much fun to put this together. And I don't know about you, but for me, one of the things I love about podcasting as a medium is the ability to sit down and learn from people who are truly in the know, have been through the challenges that you're facing and know how to do it. They've seen the movie before and they know it needs to be done. And that conversation with Jonathan Bush really brings that to light. Just incredible insights. Now in the runner up spot at number two of our countdown is Bayesian Health. We welcome Dr. Suchi Saria, CEO and founder and a distinguished academic at Johns Hopkins University, joined us for the first ever episode of the AWS Health Innovation Podcast. So this is the ultimate throwback. This conversation covers the integral role machine learning is having in extracting actionable insights from healthcare data. What does the private sector startup world offer in terms of additional opportunity that you couldn't do from someplace as esteemed as Johns Hopkins from your current position? Oh, great question. One thing that's really interesting is in academia, we're very good at taking really hard problems and pushing the frontier to show what's possible. But when you go into the real world, you have to not just show what's possible with a Rube Goldberg machine, this esoteric things, you have to scale it. And when you're scaling it, you have to think of, you know, um, repeatability robustness, reliability, design, right. uh, maintenance, margins, all that, which is really important to actually take an idea that is working to, to, to really think about. So that's one very important aspect. The second thing is more particular to MLAI. Now, turns out there are actually now a large number of clinical areas and applications where you can take the data and you really could improve outcomes, reduce financial waste, bring like the quadruple emission of healthcare, right? Making possible for providers to practice with lower burnout, administratively giving the right level of care and getting rewarded for it. Like all of that is possible. But the reality of what I saw was many of these researchers were basically sitting in labs where you have like people who understand algorithms, but algorithms are just a starting point. You need this to be within workflow. You need this to be operationalized. You need to think about design. You need right. to think hard about measurement. What is getting measured? How do you go from one site to another? How do you build algorithms that transport? In fact, a lot of my research actually then got motivated by going out in the real world, observing all the gaps that you see when you go out in the real world. And most academic labs are not set up to make things work in the real world. They're very set up to explore the frontier of the hard problems or not necessarily scale it. So it's the going out in the real world that I really wanted to accelerate. And to do that, like at Bayesian, we'd have to, I probably work with people from over nine disciplines. Right. At, and when I say nine disciplines, I don't mean nine clinical disciplines. I really mean nine totally different disciplines from human factors, engineering, product, uh, design, to client success, to systems engineering, 
data science, marketing, messaging, all that matters. And so I think it's the ability to assemble A-plus players across the board that care about end-to-end success. And they're all united in one single mission, which is helping us bring data to life to empower frontline providers to improve outcomes. And they're united in one big mission. They're not here because they want to be a first author paper or a last author paper. They're here because they together want to make this happen. That's fantastic. Yeah, no, that's, it makes total sense. And we, in, in my previous life in the clinical medicine and in general surgery, we always saw that balance of people who wanted to do cutting edge, high profile research, but also had to do something like a surgical subspecialty where there's nowhere to hide. Like you either, you have the outcomes or you don't. And it's, I, it's the same. I actually never thought of it that way on the startup side or in the, the private sector business side, where, as you said, you have to build a product that people use. Like you can't yeah. grant that, that builds that up, right? Like you raise money and you have runway and all those things, but it's not, it's literally non-academic to do it. But, but also what an advantage to have that deep expertise in in this technology and access to great folks who are thinking deeply about this because you need both to really make it work. Absolutely. And one of the biggest gaps I saw was how much of what, in fact, in building Bayesian, we've taken a totally flip playbook than what a typical digital health startup does. We raised funding from incredibly credible people who had just, just been fabulous partners. They understand the scaling up part. They understand the AI. They're credible AI researchers themselves, but have built billion dollar plus companies. They understand moving deep uh, tech into the real world. And so we brought people together. We raised funding. We stayed in stealth. Mm-hmm. We did not go and start creating noise, marketing decks. We actually stayed in stealth with this very strong belief that if you look at other aspects of medicine, you know, like COVID, even for COVID vaccines, right? There's a strong principle dissemination infrastructure where you first come up with the idea, then you turn into, it's a molecule, you test it. Right. You develop it, you turn it into a prototype, then you do studies where you put it into workflow, you get people to take it, you do prospective studies to see if it's working, you test various aspects of it. And it's only once you've established evidence, high quality evidence, that you then go out and start my whole point of fundraising that the people I did was for them to take a long view. This is mm-hmm. not a question of whether, it's a question of when. This is happening to us. To succeed, it's going to be taking the long view and doing it right. And doing it right meant patience. And, and it's not easy as a commercially oriented company to be in stealth because it's right. really, when on LinkedIn, everybody's making noise all day long to get distracted. But for us, it was all about this is what's necessary. And so we did, we built a platform, we deployed, we studied, we came out of stealth with some really cool groundbreaking results for the field. And we have several more in the works that I'm pretty excited about that's going to come down the line. And that's really exciting. And we're actually seeing when we're talking to health system leaders, we're seeing a very different kind of reaction when they see us do this. So it's been fun. How did you approach building a team in stealth mode like that? So actually, I'd like two parts. One, as a first-time founder, um, how did you approach building that team? And then... How did your investors 
align with that, being in stealth, really validating the solution, taking that patient measured approach, and then going aggressively to market. Yeah. So I think uh, one thing I realized is just because you're in stealth doesn't mean you can't talk to people. So that's helpful. And then the second thing is it really did help that I have a long track record in the field, right? Personally, I'm a known quantity. So from that point of view, there were many people who had read my papers, many people who knew of our research. And so it was possible for us to recruit very high quality talent, even in stealth. Well, not, I have to say I was making the job harder for myself because I have definitely noticed we came out of stealth maybe 16, 17 weeks ago. And just the difference in terms of like inbounds and reception we're getting once the story is out there, it's just easier for people to hear. So it's definitely a much, much harder task. But as a first time founder, when you don't know any better, you do a ton of things that you might not have known to do otherwise. Right. It felt like I was pretty married to the idea of data and evidence over marketing. So it felt important to get that right. And honestly, I actually think the fact that we had the time, we were able to learn things that we wouldn't take the time to learn because we'd be in a rush if we were out there. So I'll give you as an example, like one of the results we came out of stuff with was like a very beautiful five-site study where we showed deployed over, we have data uh, like over two plus years now, almost three years, data showing very high frontline adoption. So like 4,000 plus mm -hmm. providers using our tool. I was a physician. Most CDS tools get something like 10, 12, 15. I think very large vendors, when you look at the aggregate number, something like 9% adoption is what I've heard from metrics. And these are when many of the times, they, the way they force you to use it is by making it mandatory. Right. In our tool, everything was designed in a way I would often say, I want to bring back the joy of practicing medicine. I want them to like it. I don't want them to do it because I'm forcing them to do it. And so it was not mandatory. It was optional. You can come in, they click. And we showed... Basically, in our study, you'll sustain over a two and a half year period, 89% adoption engagement. That's a very, and you can't get outcomes if you don't have adoption. Of course, there are lots of other metrics we talk about, like sensitivity, specificity, early detection, very rigorous trials, measuring outcomes. But that's one example of something where it took us two and a half years of tons of research leading up to it, and then a long trial, because it's much easier to have a small team, three months, do a little quick and done study from five people you engage just for that trial. And then you think, oh, this looks good. And the reality is none of those two tools scale. And so for us to be able to be patient in doing this, because it's foundational, we can, we do this, it's easy to scale to other places. Right. Every founder is worried about fundraising, making sure there's enough money in the bank, extending runway, and making sure you can make payroll. But sometimes you forget that the investors you bring on board are going to be with you for 10 years. And so that partnership and that fit is critical. And that conversation really brought to life how important it is to find investors that are aligned to the type of company you wanna build. Now, the big moment has arrived. Welcome to number one of our countdown, the most popular episode of the AWS Health Innovation Podcast of all time. Are you ready? Drum roll, please. It's Iterative Scopes. Dr. Jonathan Ning, CEO and founder, spoke with us in episode 20 about pioneering AI-based precision medicine and gastroenterology. Dr. Ng's insights into the complexities of healthcare entrepreneurship, the value of skepticism in founding a startup, and the nuances of startup financing are fantastic.
So what about your journey and background coming to this? Like why, why tackle this segment with your experience? Yeah, that's a great question. So I got quite a long journey in healthcare till date. And I think Iteroscope um, is really a combination of my experience in healthcare over a period of, I'd say now, maybe 20 years. So my own journey, I'm originally from Singapore, grew up really middle class, and I had my first experience in healthcare outside of Singapore in Cambodia, which back in the day when I was 15, I was invited by a friend's dad who happened to be a surgeon to Cambodia to help carry his bags. And as part of this journey, as part of this trip, I had the opportunity to enter a pediatric hospital and I realized that there was nothing in the hospital. It was wooden beds, three kids to a bed, surgical table was built with an Ikea table and torch lights. And the lights would electricity would normally go out and that made me firstly really curious, but also it shot me where I realized that the situation, which even neighboring countries in Singapore was facing, their reality was very different where a place like Cambodia had recently, back then recently undergone intellectual genocide where the Khmer Rouge and the Pol Pot regime had decided to wipe out their intellectual class and starting with physicians and teachers. Hmm. And so I said, hey, this is, it's only two hours away from Singapore. We come with, I come from a really, I would say, privileged society. We have a lot of resources in Singapore. And I just found it to be really unacceptable to stand by and watch. And that eventually led to me spending the next, I would say, about 15 years doing a couple of things, building, helping to build the first open heart surgery programs for heart surgery for kids in Cambodia. Their first neonatal wards, which is care for babies under 28 days, both ICU as well as normal care, birds and reconstructive units. We created the first pediatric ones in Cambodia, and then we moved on to building whole hospitals in rural Cambodia as well. We built quite a few. These hospitals are around today, and they see about a thousand kids a day in each hospital. But I think the most important thing was it gave me a really early insight into how healthcare really was in the majority of the world and how we weren't on track to catching up and helping them to catch up to the disparity that we were seeing. But as I approached my 15th anniversary and working in Cambodia, and meanwhile, I got through med school, I, I had done that fair bit of surgical training and I just felt really disappointed in how we were doing things, right? We were not, I just felt as we started examining different countries and different areas in Cambodia where we could work in as well, we just had a sinking feeling that we were back at square one again where it's just facing the same problems, facing the same issues. And at the core of which was information on medical knowledge transfer, where we take 15 years to train a physician, including 10 for specialization. And we couldn't do that faster. And it's just insufficient today. How did you get from there to a very private sector commercial enterprise? Because I think the bridge is particularly relevant to then how you get to iterative scopes. So I ended up breaking my wrist during my clinical days. I was a total surgical junkie. I loved surgery. But at the end of that was I ended up breaking my wrist in a car accident and having to take some time off. That really forced me to think about the why I was in healthcare and refocus my intention. I realized that the why I was in healthcare was to help as many people as I could. And that did not necessarily mean doing it with my own two hands in a surgical theater. In fact, the more I thought about it, the more frustrated I got because I was like, hospitals are seeing a thousand kids a day in Cambodia being actually well run, whereas 
it, I would struggle with one or two patients a day, right? And it would like really tire me out. And I decided to take some time off. And I said, yeah, I need some time to rethink how uh, we're doing things. And by then I was working in the Ministry of Health in Singapore, overseeing a lot of surgical policy work. And I decided to apply for grad school. So ended up applying for and getting into MIT, doing my MBA there. And I was also at Harvard doing my MPA and uh, teaching as a healthcare policy fellow as well. And so um, moving out to the, uh, the U.S. about four and a half years ago. And so MIT was like the bridge step that got you into founding a startup to work on these challenges at scale, uh, essentially. It's funny, and you and I have talked about our shared experience, that you never think about scale when you're a clinician. It's not a word that you use. It's a, maybe in the public health space, but never in the context of direct clinical care. And when I made the jump over to the policy world, and it sounds like you've done some of that through your time in, in Cambridge and Boston, that was the first time that I, the concept of it came through, but not even then I would never have used the word scale because it's a very businessy word to think about. What I love about iterative scopes is that it fits into the way clinicians that are doing these scopes for GI disorders think and approach the process. Like it's, we always talk about workflow with healthcare tools, and it really seems to nestle neatly in the workflow, the existing workflow. Is that an accurate statement for how you envisioned it? Uh, absolutely. I think from day one, we had had this obsession around workflow and making it really as convenient as possible for physicians to adopt this, understanding that one of the toughest problems in healthcare is simply adoption. You get a physician and having been then, I think being able to empathize with that, it also carries through to my own behavior today where you ask me to, you know, do two extra clicks and I'm like, I don't want to do it. No way. Yeah. Yeah. There's no way. (laughs) I'm going to take the straightest path towards my objective. It's a very surgical mindset too. Efficient, the economy of motion and efficiency. So I think placing that demand on ourselves and placing the intellectual rigor that behind trying to think about how we can reduce steps to adoption and then steps to utility has just been really critical in our work today. And I believe it's going to pay itself off eventually as well. Through the ideation stages with your time at MIT and thinking through solving big problems, what was the spark? Like, how did you go from this is a problem to this becomes a software-based solution to this is a company? Because that is not a, not always the most straightforward path. Yeah. So I think where I started with was a North Star of what I want to do which my North Star for coming to school in the first place was how can I use technology to close in on healthcare disparities and gaps there? And then understanding as well that most innovations and most big leaps within healthcare did not come from within healthcare. And so having an open mind there, like it's just really difficult to create new technology within healthcare. The risk aversion is too high. The cost is too high. There isn't enough investment. It's not the right mix. But I was like, are the technologies which are right out there, which are right to bring into healthcare that I can be at the leading edge of and decide on the how we bring into healthcare. And so the North Star with, a, with an open mind, I arrived at MIT and within the first few months, came into contact with basically computer vision as a technology. I think 
one of the first areas where I saw it was, um, we have this, what we called like demo day for Delta V, which is accelerator program at MIT. And someone was working on computer vision algorithms for autonomous vehicles. I think back then it was, they were building repositories of videos for autonomous cars. And I was like, that looks like fascinating technology, but if only I could use it in healthcare, right? They were drawing bodily about this around cars, cats, dogs, trees. And I was like, why can't I draw these boxes around various types of tumors, for example, but perhaps not with the same use case. I'm not trying to drive something around the body, but are there areas in which we need to count these objects or are there areas in which we need to classify these objects, right? And what it mean, and what does that actually mean for patients? How much do physicians actually care about it? So thinking about it that way instead. Well, folks, there you have it. Thank you for joining us for the second part of the AWS Health Innovation Podcast Top 10 Countdown. We hope we've inspired you to go back and listen to at least one of these fantastic conversations. Just head to our show notes for links to each episode. If you like what we're doing here and you want to support the show, please subscribe, share with your network, and leave us a review. We read every review. Thank you so much for your feedback. And remember, advancing health is a team sport. Is there someone else on the journey that you could lend a helping hand to? We'll be back with more conversations soon. Until then, keep innovating and take care.